According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, the Lord has allowed us to assemble by his grace. We don't earn it, don't deserve it. We live in a free country where free assembly still is permitted. So we want to redeem these opportunities. Join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We are continuing, and I expect we will be wrapping up today. I say that. We've got subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F, and G to cover today, and but they should go pretty quickly. On uh, the rich man and Lazarus, we've already covered the uh, unjust steward in the uh, early points. Really, uh, three points of the outline dealt with the unjust steward. And then point four dealt with the Pharisees' reaction, how they scoffed. And that's really, um, the more I read about that, I've gone back and prayed through some more issues even after we were done teaching it. The idea that you're going to scoff at the Word of God is frightening. Absolutely frightening because God has magnified His Word above or equal to His own name. And you know, if you, def- you, you cannot take the Lord's name in vain, how can you scoff at His Word that He's elevated in accordance with His name? And so these scoffers of his word, like we saw in the Obadiah study, if you mock his word, he will mock you. And when he mocks you, that's not a pleasant experience. All right, so Luke 16. We are in the second half of this chapter dealing with the rich man and Lazarus in verses 19 through 31. So let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. And I just uh, thank you for this uh, Wednesday morning. It's a special day during a uh, what's a holiday or vacation week for a lot of folks. And I thank you that we have uh, the opportunity to assemble today and to study to show ourselves approved. Father, bless our time in the word today. Uh, we thank you in particular for this chapter that uh, is one of the most vivid places in all the Bible to talk about the uh, experience of the believer after physical death. And uh, so we ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding and give us this understanding. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I'm thinking the men may outnumber the women today. That's outstanding. Neat feature for our ladies class here on a Wednesday morning. That's outstanding. All right. Parables of the unjust steward, rich man and Lazarus. Uh, I've said a number of times in making use of somebody else's harmony of the Gospels is that you are rather uh, trapped by the titles that they select for the uh, episodes. And uh, someday, perhaps, if uh, if I ever design my own Harmony of the Gospels, I'll relabel everything, give everything my own titles. Uh, but the one issue here I dispute in terms of this title is that I do not believe this is a parable. I think with the unjust steward, it's a parable, and it's taught as a parable. Uh, one of the characteristics of parables is, of course, that uh, the characters in the drama are left unnamed. For example, who was the prodigal? Who was the prodigal's son? Who, uh, uh, who was the prodigal's dad? Who was the prodigal son's older brother? No names are given in that parable. In any parable, there are no names given. This is an episode in which a name is given. The, the name of Lazarus is given. And so if it is a parable, it is the only one in Scripture where names are named. 
as far as that goes. And the indication here seems to be that this is a true story that Jesus is relating as a, a uh, amplification for uh, for the uh, for the chapter. So in any event, whether it's a parable or not, well, I guess we'll find out when we get there. But we are presently in main point five then for the outline. As I said, points one, two, and three covered the unjust steward. Uh, point four covered the mocking of the and the scoffing of the Pharisees who uh, were very dismissive of what Jesus had to teach there. And now uh, under point five, what will bring this chapter to a close then, the last point, point five, the rich man and Lazarus illustrate the realities of life and death. The realities of life and death. And it's a pretty simple story. Uh, one that uh, you're probably already familiar with, and we can read through here in glance. But even unbelievers have heard of this story before, in the sense that it's uh, it's so universal. It's it it really addresses the realities of of humanity, and so even an unbeliever can identify with the situation. So it says in verse 19, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. A summary capsule of temporal life living. And he had it made. Everything was was great. A wonderful life. And Abraham will describe that for him. In his life, he received good things. He lived the good life, as we would say. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed. The verb tenses in these verses express the continuous action. This was not just a short story. Uh, This was a long period of time that transpired. Uh, for months, probably years, Lazarus was habitually laid there daily at this man's gate, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Uh, language even that mirrors the prodigal son who was longing to eat the pods that the pigs were eating when he was in his reversionism out there. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So there's your story. And, of course, it has a happy ending. Um, The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. (laughs) And I just love that. I love the way Luke, you know, uh, crafts this uh, because he's he's going back and forth. He's telling two stories at once and he's blending them. And, uh, obviously, what's true in the one case has a parallel in the other. You understand that uh, we don't assume that uh, that the Lazarus was not buried; that he his corpse was left exposed in the, on the surface of the of the grounds there by his door. Um, that he was obviously buried, and uh, just as the rich man was buried. Uh, but the text prefers to emphasize the fact that as a believer, Old Testament believer, Lazarus was uh, honored. He was carried away in honor. Uh, similar to, you know, we have traditions in our own burial practices that have come down through the years where we have, um, uh, you know, those that bear the uh, the pallbearers, you know, the folks that are selected to carry the uh, casket in uh, in a burial process of whatever sort that you uh, that you end up with. And typically it's a thing of honor when that happens. Uh, like with Javier, we had the military honors as the soldiers uh, dealt with their ceremony and the and all of the honoring ritual that takes place there. Or in other cases, you've got other traditions that you follow. But generally speaking, (laughs) it's an honor to be selected or to be asked. You consider that a a service that you're delighted to do, uh, to be a pallbearer because you are um, 
uh, you know, you loved the person that's no longer here and you want to show that respect, you want to show that appreciation and that honor, see. You don't have your enemies carrying your casket uh, <laughs> in any event. Well, so you think about the honor here of a believer. And the angels carried him away to Abraham's bosom. And, of uh, course, what happened to the rich man? What, what was the status of his soul? Well, we know that he's unsaved. We know he's in hell. He's in torment. They're both in hell, technically. To, uh, we'll, we'll give you the terms today to define Sheol, to define Hades, to show you the compartments of hell in which there was a place, Abraham's bosom was a compartment. I'm going to outline all that for you. Uh, but uh, the reality is is that he's, he's buried, but that's not the end of his story either. All right, His body is buried, just like the believer's body is buried. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Believers and unbelievers die. Bodies go on the ground. It's what happens after that that becomes significant, and that's what we want to uh, have in our thinking when we are leading people to Christ and declaring the gospel and, and uh, warning the uh, unbelievers that uh, their destiny is the destiny of torments. So uh, now I assume it's not stated in the text here, but his soul also must have been carried. It was carried not to Abraham's bosom, but to torments, to the uh, tormenting compartment of of Sheol, of Hades. And um, we're told there in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. That's verse 23. All right. He has eyes. His his eyeballs are with the rest of his corpse in the uh, in the ground. And uh, generally, there'll be, you know, the soft, fleshy organs and tissues are among the first to be eaten away or or decomposed in that. Uh, But this uh, verse here is not referencing his eyeballs of the the organic physical human body. That's still in the grave. This is something else. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So... Uh, somehow or other, his soul got to Hades. And whether that means the angels carried away uh, him to to, uh, Hades, um, I don't have the answers on that. Scripture doesn't tell us. You know, are elect angels chosen to carry believers to to, uh, glory? And fallen angels are selected to carry unbelievers to hell? Um, Possibly. It's a logical thought, but we don't know that for a certainty. Maybe uh, elect angels are assigned in both capacities. It may be elect angels are the ones that are assigned to take the uh, souls of the unbelievers to Hades. Um, I don't know that fallen angels would be all that bothered about obeying the Lord and, and doing that kind of a thing anyway. So it may be that it's the elect angels that are uh, tasked. We don't know. All right, It's probably more questions than answers at this point. But in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Uh, this, uh, like I say, this is the most vivid passage in all of Scripture that describes post-mortem activity. What happens to believers and unbelievers both after physical death? This is a very vivid chapter to describe this. And we want to get details here so that we can understand. Now, it's not a church age passage. I have to tell you that as well. Uh, we're not in the church age as, the, as these events are unfolding. So there's differences. We'll highlight those differences there. All right. Uh, in particular, um, the fact that uh, we don't go to Abraham's bosom today. We don't go down into shale today. We don't go down into hell today. We get to go to glory today. And we'll describe those differences because today, paradise is in the third heaven. Right? We'll, we'll show you those passages as well. Um, but the, clearly, though, I don't know if you have any uh, friends that believe in uh, annihilation. Okay, 
Um, there's no annihilation. That's a false concept. The idea that after death, nothing, right? That the soul dies when the body dies and that all existence ends. And that after physical life, there is nothing. See, and the, and the, the idea of eternity of existence is, is uh, alien to that philosophy. This passage does not describe annihilation. This passage describes uh, after death awareness of circumstances, either comforting or tormenting circumstances after physical death. So, let's uh, start to spell it out then. Paradise and torments. I'm going to give them these titles, Paradise and Torments, even though the word paradise does not appear in this chapter. In this chapter, it's referred to as Abraham's bosom, but I equate the two. Most scholars do. Paradise and torments are two compartments within Sheol. Now, if you want to give it the name Sheol, you'll use the Hebrew vocabulary, Sheol. If you want to call it Hades, you're going to use the Greek vocabulary, Hades. If you want to call it Hell, then that's English vocabulary. Okay? Find, uh, find a term. Uh, Latin had a term as well. Um, be that as it may. Uh, the underworld. What, what happens to the realm of humanity when they depart? Mortality. All right, and the imagery, it's interesting, even among the pagans, they still maintain the uh, concepts that humanity occupied a physical realm and that God, well, the, to the pagans, the gods, uh, the pantheon, Zeus and his buddies, all uh, occupied a heavenly realm, a spirit realm, a realm of light, which was always, always indicated as being above the mortal realm, and then there was the departed realm, the realm of the dead, the underworld, and it was universal among uh, the Latins, among the Greeks, among the pagans uh, from the ancient world and even into modern times. Um, And not surprisingly, of course, most of the lies of the adversary have some grain of truth in them because the fallen angels understand what the the realities are. They understand what the domain of heaven's about. They used to be there. Uh, They understand what the uh, underworld is about. Uh, they're going to head there someday, right? They don't like it, uh, but that is their destiny. The fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so um, they don't like the fact that that realm exists. And uh, it might possibly be uh, their fear of that is such that it uh, motivates a lot of what they do. In any event, this is the term. Uh, Sheol is the Hebrew, S-H-E. Uh, if you want to put the apostrophe in there, make sure the apostrophe angles to the right. That indicates your alf, your Aleph character. If your apostrophe angles to the left, that's a different Hebrew character, not in this word. So Sheol, S-H-E, right-angled apostrophe, O-W-L, Sheol, number 7585. And that Aleph, by the way, I've said this a couple of times, that Aleph is a Hebrew consonant that does not have an equivalent in the English language. The only thing you can do to replicate it is pretend it's like the H, the silent H at the beginning of the word honest. It means you're closing the back of your throat to say honest, right? Say that with me, honest. You feel that closed throat. You don't say honest or honest or anything. You say honest and you have a a closed throat to start that word. And that's what the Aleph is in the... uh, as a consonant in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's not Sheol, just kind of all run together. It's Sheol, where you close your throat halfway through that word. All right. So, uh, of course, I'm not a native Hebrew speaker, so I often just call it Sheol, and don't worry about it. Uh, I guess in Texas that'd be Sheol, y'all, right? 
But now keep in mind, the Old Testament has a lot to say about Sheol. 31 times the word is used, plus there's other expressions like the grave and other expressions that relate to Sheol in the, in the Hebrew text. And it is a term that applies to dead people. Okay? And it does not discriminate between whether you're a saved dead person or an unsaved dead person. Your dead is dead. And you're all going to Sheol. See, part of this is what led Solomon in his despair to write some of the things he wrote in uh, Ecclesiastes. Because he observed that uh, good guys, uh, holy guys, righteous guys died and, and rebels, sinners died. And they seemed just as dead as everybody else seemed dead. And, and uh, when they died, then their ungrateful kids inherited what they had saved up and, and uh, just the way life went. You know, you live hard, play fun, have fun, you know, and then die. And uh, in the Ecclesiastes mentality, that's it. That's all there is. And it's uh, even a shame and a disappointment. If you're all going to end up at the same place anyway, then why not have some fun along the way? Why, why uh, miss out on some of the fun in life by, uh, you know, trying to be holy if you're all just going to end up in Sheol anyway? Well, that's a human viewpoint, carnal, ugly way to look at it. Here we find out that, okay, there's a huge difference. Because within Sheol itself are these compartments. And between these compartments is this vast chasm that's fixed, and there's no crossing back and forth. But you can look across, and I find that to be exciting. <laughs> I find that. That's not going the way it's going to be in for all eternity. Because death and Hades are going to be given up. They're going to be delivered up to the great white throne judgment, and then they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And so this whole situation where you can look across and see uh, the unbelievers over there in torments, or where they can look across to see you and your other believers there in, in paradise, that situation's over. In fact, today doesn't even exist anymore. Jesus Christ led captivity captive. And paradise today is no longer in Sheol. See, it was at that time. Uh, Jesus Christ promised the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And they descended into Sheol that very day. But... We'll, uh, we're going to highlight this, and this is point one in doing so. So, paradise and torments were two compartments within Sheol or Hades. A great chasm was fixed between them, and no crossing was possible. Now, the Greek term is, is Hades, H-A-D-E-S. Uh, There's really no H in the Greek, but it's a breathing mark over the A. And uh, it's one of the unusual Greek spellings as well, in the sense that there is a, uh, a, a tiny little iota that's a subscript underneath that alpha as far as that goes but h-a-d-e-s is your term used 11 times in the uh, greek new testament so two compartments and uh whereas today we talk about you know we have the euphemism today where we say uh uh you know we're going upstairs or we're going downstairs right we, we talk about uh where you're headed after you die are you going upstairs or going downstairs kind of a thing well Back then, everybody went downstairs, <laughs> okay? Everybody went downstairs. It was just a matter of whether they took the left fork or the right fork once they got down that staircase, see? Which side of the chasm they landed on when they dropped down that chute, <laughs> all right? Or as the angels carried you down there, they made sure they put you on the right side. So uh, different things that happened there. Like I say, we're dealing with an age prior to our own age. Now, both compartments... There's a lot of similarities between these compartments. Both compartments feature conscious awareness. Conscious awareness of post-mortem conditions. 
conscious awareness. In other words, the rich man was in torment and he knew he was in torment. He hated it. He wanted it to stop. And if it couldn't stop, he wanted it at least lessened for a moment. Both compartments feature capacity for observations and communication. Those are similarities. Conscious awareness, capacity for observations, capacity for communication. And so it is proper, it's appropriate to consider that once you die and you get to heaven, uh, that uh, you may want to look around. You might want to check out some things. You might want to see what's there. You might want to observe. In this passage and other passages of Scripture say that that's possible. In fact, it's even normal. All right. Although, um, well, I have another point here. We're going to discuss it. Um, we may have better things to be doing. And uh, it, it may be, uh, well, let me get some other details here as well. I think uh, we're going to have to understand or consider two possibilities as far as the word bosom is concerned. Is it, uh, is it uh, geographical or anatomical in this passage? And that's something we'll, uh, we'll evaluate here in a moment. But the idea that you just go to sleep and you have no awareness of anything is evil. It's not biblical. You are very aware. If you're lost, you're going to be in torments and you're going to know it and you're going to hate it. If you're saved, you're going to be comforted, and you're going to know it, and you're going to love it. <laughs> right? So you talk about stark opposites. That's just about it. Now, capacity for observations and communication. And the nature of this communication is going to be fun as well. Because of the ability to discuss things with fellow believers, of course, looking forward to that. But the ability that this rich man has to communicate with believers, to communicate with Abraham across the gulf, say. So, how close do you have to be to somebody to have a conversation? Right? I can have a pretty good conversation here with folks in the third row or the fourth row. I could even talk to La Rosa back there at the recording desk. I just have to speak up a little bit. Or folks over there in the side room, I could, you know, and, and maybe after a little while, it's not as comfortable to maintain a long conversation if you're shouting across a room. So maybe it's a little bit more polite to, uh, all right, if we're going to hold a conversation, let's get a little bit closer. Okay? And if we get a little bit closer, then we don't have to shout so much. And we can speak a little softer. Uh, actually, if we're not shouting, then we have a, a wider range whereby we can communicate. We actually can, can do more things with our voice in our inflection and in our, in our expressions and in our, uh, in our fellowship and things because we're not shouting. Okay? Uh, shouting uh, limits some of the uh, nuances of tone and range. And you, you understand what I'm saying here? All right. Because there is a difference. This rich man and Lazarus or, or, and, and Abraham, they're across this vast gulf. And how wide is it? I, to me, it's got to be pretty wide. You don't want anyone jumping across okay, or somehow crossing over. It's not possible to jump it anyway. But uh, So however wide that is, how, how wide does it have to be that no one can jump it? How far can a soul jump? Okay. More questions than answers here today. That's all right. Um, it's far enough where you can't cross, but it's not so far that you can't talk. You can communicate. 
And I think we're going to be exposed to some features of communication and glory that we can only dream about today. Soul-to-soul communication that's available in glory that we only have glimpses of today. And uh, distances, I think, are going to become more irrelevant in glory. Consider uh, your prayer life. Your prayer life, distance has no factor in your prayer life. You already understand that now. Just from the fact that from right where you are, you can be in the throne of grace right now, pouring out your heart before the Lord. And uh, you can have a loved one on the other side of the world, in a combat zone in Afghanistan somewhere. And prayer makes distance irrelevant. And I think that's going to be a feature of our post-mortem soul communication. Mind to mind, soul to soul. The ability to communicate thoughts and and different things without the limitations of human vocabulary might be uh, an interesting thing there as well. So both sides can observe, both sides can communicate. In Hades, oh look at that, got a weird font thing going on. In Hades, the rich man was in torment. Vocabulary for torment is called basanos, B-A-S-A-N-O-S. Accent on the first syllable, basanos, B-A-S-A-N-O-S, basanos. Number 931. It's only used three times in all of Scripture. And um, I think two of them are right here, and I forget where the third one is. Um, Not a very common term, but uh, agony is another one. Again, not common, used four times. And uh, the uses there are interesting because not only are they in Luke 16, but also Luke 2.48, Acts 20.38. It's the word that Mary used when she... uh, Jesus was 12 years old in the temple, and she says that she and uh, her father were, his father, were in agony. Uh, we, were, we were worried about you. We thought, you, you know, where were you? And he said, did you not know I must be about my father's business? It's uh, an interesting term that she used there, that they were in agony at the fact that he was missing. Sometimes we don't pay attention to the agony that she expressed in that verse there in Luke 2.48. And likewise, Acts 20.38 is uh, the other use. Um, all of these are by Luke's authorship, you notice. Uh, in Acts 20, um, when the elders of Ephesus could not convince Paul to change his mind and not go to Jerusalem, then they uh, embraced him and then were weeping, repeatedly kissing him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And uh, they were accompanying him to the ship. Grieving. Is how it's translated there, especially over the word which he had spoken, they would not see his face again, grieving. See, I think the huge difference between heaven and hell, paradise and torments, uh, being saved or being lost, is that uh, it's the crowd that's lost is the crowd that has the regrets. It's the crowd that has the um, reflection back in regret uh notice which one is the one that wants to send a messenger back to planet earth it's the rich man with his brothers that are got five brothers that are all headed where he's headed they're all unbelievers on the road to hell he's the one that has regrets he's the one that has messages he wants to get back to to family lazarus doesn't have any messages that he regrets not giving i think he gave his messages while he was on earth see Um, 
Agony is the term uh, adunao, hadunao. Now I'm not sure if it's a rough or a smooth breather. I've got a smooth breather on the Greek and then I put an H in the transliteration. Number 3600. I think it's hadunao, so it's uh, not typed correctly in the Greek. H-O-D-U-N-A-O, number 3600, four uses. As I said, Luke 2.48, Luke 16.24 and 25, that's our passage here. And then uh, the one we just glanced at in, with the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20.38. And what causes the agony? The agony is caused by flames. 53.95, the, ver- the noun is flux. It's not the verb for fire, it's the verb for the flames that fire produces. Uh, Pur is your word for fire, P-U-R, P-Y-R. Pyro, uh, but flocks is our term for flames, and uh, fire produces the flames, and that's uh, what's burning them here. And interestingly enough, the lake of fire is also uh, a place of burning, a place of flames, a place of torments, uh, and yet the difference being uh, here, torments, there's still some grace. I don't know if you ever think about that. In hell, there's still grace. This rich man has grace that even has the opportunity to have a conversation with Abraham. That's grace. He's got opportunity to see Lazarus being comforted. That's grace. The uh, lake of fire, although it has flame, is a dark flame because there's no light. The lake of fire is eternal darkness. And it's, some of that's a little bit obscure in our thinking because we think uh, fire produces light. You know, We think that if there's fire, then you should be able to see something. Okay, That's not going to be the case in the eternal darkness of the lake of fire. So that's, uh, that's definitely a difference. I think there's a lot of grace and mercy in this chapter that Abraham has the opportunity to discuss these things with him. Not, of course, as the Catholics teach it, that this guy now has a second chance once he goes through purgatory that he can somehow uh, you know, earn his way to the other side. This passage says, no, there's no crossing over from here to there or there to you. All right. Personal soul recognition. Oh, this one, I've dwelt on this one for hours. Personal soul recognition, point D. Personal soul recognition and life stories were immediately known between Abraham and the rich man. How did this rich man know who Abraham even was? How did Abraham know who this rich man was? How did Abraham know that this rich man had good things his whole life? How did Abraham know that Lazarus had bad things his whole life? So I'm labeling this uh, two things, personal soul recognition and life stories. And so, again, we read the text. It says in Luke 17, Luke 16, 23, In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Again, we're going to have to identify whether the term bosom is geographical or anatomical. I think um, in uh, most cases, it's referred to Geographically, it's referred to as a place. It's a place name. Abraham's bosom is a place name. It's, it refers to paradise. It refers to that compartment. It refers to the comforting side of the chasm within Sheol. And we call it Abraham's bosom. But what if it's not a place? Because this is the only place in Scripture where the term Abraham's bosom occurs. 
So we don't have other passages in Scripture where we can verify that, okay, it's a, it's a geographical name. Okay? And if we can't absolutely prove that it's a geographical name, then we have to legitimately ask, does it have to be a geographical name? Could it just simply be, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, he saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus hugging him. Lazarus in his bosom, as the Apostle John reclining in the bosom of Jesus at the uh, table in the upper room at the Last Supper. The uh, disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple reclining on Jesus' breast. Okay, same vocabulary, same term. And so it's legitimate to evaluate whether or not uh, Abraham's bosom is a, uh, a place name or... If this is a, a hug from the, the uh, federal head of the Jewish inheritance, Abraham welcoming his son into a place of comfort. And given how long Lazarus's misery was, uh, it's quite possible this was a very long hug. <laughs> All right. And uh, I don't know, I, I, you know, you could take it either way. And I'm not going to dogmatically insist on one understanding versus another understanding. Uh, because it, I think grammatically it is appropriate to, uh, to take it in, uh, in either consideration. But he cried out, said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger. Now, why does Lazarus have, have a finger? Isn't the finger... With his hand, with his arm, with the rest of his corpse in the dirt, buried somewhere on planet Earth. Same thing with uh, Hades. Same thing with the rich man's eyes and uh, tongue. What's his tongue doing here? The dip of uh, dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. So we got these body parts in this verse, and I find that interesting. In fact, I'll get a point of study on that here in a moment. Um. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, child. And I think that's a clue too. Again, in the setting of this, in the uh, it's not church age, it's dispensation of Israel. I believe the rich man was a Jewish rich man, but an unbeliever. Not saved just because he's Jewish. Uh, you have to believe in the coming Messiah for eternal life. And uh, so Lazarus is Jewish. The rich man's Jewish. And... Uh, Lazarus is saved, the rich man is not. But Abraham calls him child. Remember that during your life you receive your good thing. Now, how does Abraham know that? How does Abraham know that? Personal soul recognition. Now, this is an amazing feature. I think this is something we're going to uh, all be blessed with when... Um, much of see, I think a lot of mortality confuses things. What was that line in uh, in um, the Matrix when he finally wakes up and he says his eyes hurt and and uh, the the guy explains to him it's because you've never used them, right? I think when we when when we depart these bodies and and operate outside of the limitations of of space and time, the, the physical dimension that we operate in now, uh, we're going to have a whole lot that we're going to be perceptive towards. 
just by virtue of being removed from the finite limitations of mortality. Personal soul recognition. At a glance, knowing this man, seeing this man's soul and knowing him. Knowing his name, knowing his history, knowing his background. Whereas today, how long does it take today to, to know a person's soul? It takes some time. Absolutely it takes some time. You know, first glance, all you, all you, you know, your first impression is just a physical one. You see a, you see a body, you see a person. And you form a, 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 you know, a first glance opinion based on whatever, right? Based on appearance, right? Based on personality, based on a conversation, or based on whatever, depending on how shallow you are, <laughs> right? Fill in your own illustration, right? But you just see a person and you're just thinking based on what they look like. But you know, it's interesting, the, the more you come to know the person, say in marriage, for example, the most intimate of all human relationships, and, and you come to have a greater awareness of that person's soul, and you start to see the um, beauty within that soul, if there's soul beauty there, or you start to observe the pain in that soul, to whatever degree, we all have injuries and wounds from whatever, and... Um, Think about how tortured this man's soul was. Talking about the rich man. Okay. Think how tortured his soul was. Um, having been provided everything the cosmos can, can uh, corrupt him with, must have been a twisted, corrupted, nasty, dark, horrible, wretched soul. While he was alive, who would have known? <laughs> right? Man, when he was alive, things were great. Habitually dressed in, in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Would have made uh, the lifestyles of the rich and famous and would have been on TV and all kinds of stuff. And who would have known that he was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Well, Abraham looks at his soul and he goes right off. He sees that soul for what it is. He sees the damage. He sees the pain. He sees the wretchedness. Likewise with Lazarus. He knows, you know, in life, Lazarus received bad things. What did that do for Lazarus' soul? Consider. What happens to your soul when you are embraced in the arms of grace and he sees you through your difficulties? We're going to learn that in Second Corinthians. Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That we learn the power of God's grace, the surpassing power of God's grace, because of the thorn in the flesh testing we go through, because of the undeserved suffering we endure, because of all things, suffering all things for the sake of Christ. That's a soul that has been tested and tried and gotten some hurts along the way, but been stronger because of it. Lazarus gets there for his Abrahamic hug, and he's, he's a, a tender soul. So personal soul recognition. I, I think sometimes when I was in the Army, my uh, first assignment was with a, uh, an anti-aircraft uh, missile battalion. And uh, one of the first items we learned about was the... Uh, a device that every aircraft carries called uh, an IFF transmitter. And the uh, IFF uh, stands for Identification Friend or Foe, IFF. And basically, it's the, it's the technology in, in our aircraft that tells our uh, missiles not to shoot them, <laughs> right? It says, uh, we're, we're, we're you, don't shoot us, okay? And the bad guys, uh, which back then was the, you know, the Soviets, the communists, and uh, the, uh, the bad guys... 
they had their own equipment so that their missiles didn't shoot them. And it was always uh, a back-and-forth technology race. It was always a different thing because we'd break their codes and they'd break our codes and then we'd have to change ours and all kinds of stuff. But basically, you wanted to know everything that was flying, what it was. Was it a friend or was it a foe? And you identified it. You had a radar that would identify what it was. And um, I wonder if our souls are going to be like that. You know, an IFF receiver or transponder or something in our soul so that we come face-to-face or soul-to-soul with, uh, with uh, Noah. Are we going to know who he is? Right? Are we come face to I, mean, I got a lot of questions for Adam, but am I going to know who he is? Right? We have that, that, that expression today, right? I don't, I don't know him from Adam. So how am I going to know Adam? <laughs> I got some questions for Adam. I want to learn about what, you know, that conversation with the snake. Was he standing there when Eve talked to that serpent and ate the fruit? I think he was. I think he was standing right there the whole time and let her talk to him and let her eat that fruit. Don't know that for a fact. So I want to ask him when I see him. A lot of things I want to ask him. But personal soul recognition, I think this is going to be a feature. A feature whereby we're going to have this kind of an intimacy with one another. Soul to soul in Christ. And um, kind of an exciting thing to think about. Anyway, that's, that's kind of a lot of, uh, not a whole lot of conjecture, but it is, it is a lot of uh, consideration that comes out of a couple of verses here. One thing you cannot deny is the rich man knew Abraham immediately, and Abraham knew him, and knew his whole life story here. And uh, since that's undeniable, all you can do then is evaluate, well, what's the, uh, what's the significance of that? It makes you wonder. All right. That's why I think... Um, we're not going to have a lot of stories to tell when we get there because the stories will all be known. Yeah, we will be fully known just as we have also known. See, that's the, that's the promise about the things to come. I, I don't know. I, I think about that a lot. I still want to have a few stories to tell. <laughs> At least one story to tell. Well, who knows? All right. Hebrews 13 says I'll give an account, so I'll have some story to tell once I get there. Now. What else do we have here? Three more things. Lazarus has no desire to speak even one word to the rich man. In this whole back and forth debate, Lazarus doesn't say one word. Not one word. Lazarus had no desire to speak even one word to the rich man. But Abraham indicated that there were others on the paradise side this just boggles my mind. With a sacrificial love and a desire to minister to those on the torment side. There are others on the paradise side with a sacrificial love and a desire to minister to those on the torment side. Notice this. This is um, when he describes this gulf in verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. The word chasm there is interesting. It's, uh, it's the idea of the, 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 the pit, the abyss. Think about that. Now, I don't know. I've often considered that maybe this is the top of the abyss that has no bottom. Okay? It's the bottomless pit. It, it is an eternal downward direction uh, shaft. 
and uh, it's the shaft that uh, is going to be sealed over in the uh, millennium when uh, the devil's thrown down there, and they put a lid on it. Um, maybe it might be the same, it might not be, but whatever the case, um, those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. Well, who would want to do that? What well, blithering idiot would want to leave paradise? And like, excuse me, uh, you know, please consider me excused. Who would do that? Like it says on the screen, though, it dawned on me, you know what? There would be folks who would. Paul said he would. When Paul describes his love for his Jewish believer, uh, brethren, he goes through a great uh, dissertation on, his, on their blindness in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Are you familiar with that? And in that passage, he says that he himself would be considered accursed if he could save the Jewish people. The idea of being accursed, meaning lose salvation, meaning be an object of eternal wrath, which is not possible. Of course, it's not possible, but Paul said he'd do it. If he could save every last Jew, he would do it. And uh, that's an extraordinary statement. It's a sacrificial integrity love that I think it communicates an, an, an unbelievable compassion for the lost. And uh, really a Christ-like mindedness because Christ became accursed on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. The one who had eternal righteousness with the Father lost that righteousness in the eyes of the Father. And Abraham says, those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. So there's more than one. There's, there's several. Those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. Can you imagine that? Believers that would cross into torments to minister to these wretched souls. And none may cross from there to us. All right. doesn't stipulate uh, there might be some who would wish to. Uh, I think this is probably the vast majority. Not all. I think some are so wretched in their darkness, they would hate heaven. They would hate glory. And as wretched as they are in hell, they'd be more miserable in heaven. Be absolutely wretched in hell. Because be, it would be alien to their very nature. It would be abhorrent to their being. They would despise every minute of it. And that's uh, it's a fun method of evangelism. If you've ever done it, Recommend, uh, Pastor Jensen used to do it all the time in evangelizing, talking about eternal life with folks and talking about uh, somebody mentioned going to heaven. He'd say, well, what do you want to go to heaven for? You'd hate it there. It's a shocker, isn't it? Well, what are you talking about? I mean, I hate it there. Well, that's where God is. That's where his family is. That's where his word is. That's where, and you don't have any time for that now. You could you give two hoots about the Lord now. You don't spend any time with God's children now. You don't study His Word now. You're, you have no uh, affinity with the things of the Lord now. Why would you want to spend all eternity with that kind of thing there? See, And it's, uh, it's a, a kind of a brutally honest, blunt, direct way to say um, if you're not heavenly minded in time, 
Think how miserable you're going to be in eternity if you were sentenced to heaven against your will. In any event, that boggles the mind. Do I have that kind of a love? Would I go to hell to minister to someone? It's interesting. Though not yet in resurrection bodies, here's your uh, anatomy study for the day. Point F. Though not yet in resurrection bodies. It might seem like it, but think it through. Resurrection body doesn't happen until the trumpet. Okay? The dead in Christ aren't raised until the trumpet. And the unbelievers aren't raised until the great white throne. Unbelievers don't get raised until after a thousand years of millennial kingdom on earth. And Lazarus will have been raised long before that. Because the righteous are raised at the beginning of the millennium. Abraham and, and uh, Lazarus will come out of the grave at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. They're going to be feasting in Jerusalem for the thousand years. While the rich man is still going to have to hang out for another thousand years there in hell. He doesn't come out until death and Hades are delivered up to the great white throne after the thousand year kingdom. So uh, these are not resurrection bodies. What are they? Though not yet in resurrection bodies, Abraham had a bosom, Lazarus had a finger, the rich man had eyes and a tongue. That's just what's mentioned in these verses. I, I, I believe that they all three of them had complete bodies of whatever sort. The soul either takes a shape for itself or an interim body is crafted by God. Take your pick. <laughs> all right. One or the other. Something happens. The soul uh, desires to not be found naked. The soul is not designed to be unclothed. It's designed to occupy something. It's not, it's not designed to be disembodied. Adam became a living soul when God breathed the breath of lives into Adam. Gave him soul life spiritual life and body life to that body and um, when the soul spirit departs the body then the, the body can have no more life all right that's that at least we understand um, but the idea of uh, the soul waiting until the resurrection body is given i think the the uh, only other clue we have is in revelation where tribulational martyrs are uh, the souls of the tribulational martyrs are under the altar in heaven and they're crying out for vengeance. And the Lord tells them to rest until uh, the wrath of God is complete. The number of their brethren is complete. And they're given robes to wear. And they're told to rest. And I think that's the only clue we have in, in, in given robes to wear. Uh, how do you put a robe on something that doesn't have a shape? Okay. So I think that the soul's... Uh, will take a shape for themselves. It's, it's one, another one of the soul abilities that's going to happen once the soul is apart from the physical body of dust. See, and um, he says we can identify one another, we can communicate, we can observe, we can. There's a lot of things we can do. Uh, I think one of the features of soul is the ability or spirit is the ability to assume a shape. That happens all the time in the angel realm. The angels assume a form and they walk among humans as if they were a human because they've assumed that human form. And so um, I, I lead towards that first one. The soul takes a shape. The Latins, uh, the old Roman tradition was that God provided an interim body and they based it on that robe passage. I think God gives a robe simply to clothe 
that naked soul body, but it's a soul body the soul has taken for itself. So anyway, another clue, more questions. And, and, you know, we ask these things from time to time, right? I mean, Javier just departed here in the last couple of weeks, or, uh, or Bob Sterling, or other folks that are with the Lord now in glory. And you think, well, what are they doing right now? Say, well, I don't know, first thing, the angel carried them away into where they were headed. And then when they got there, we know uh, today in the church age, we know that absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And with the martyrdom of Stephen, we know that there was a face-to-face uh, arrival of, of the Lord with Stephen there, and, and uh, the Lord took his stand. Normally, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But when Stephen was being martyred, Jesus Christ stood up. He said, I see the heavens open. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so, um, uh, so yeah, we have the idea that the soul has departed from the body. Soul, spirit, of course, are connected. Soul, uh, spirit departs from the body, and the angels transport you to uh, to heaven, and uh, and then uh, you are made to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. And um, I, I hope there's a hug. <laughs> All right, if if Abraham was hugging Lazarus here, um, you know, I hope I can hug Jesus. I want to. He's my husband. I'm his bride. I think husbands and brides do a bit of hugging, and that's normal. So I'm hoping when we get there, we'll uh, we'll be able to do that. Well, nevertheless, we observe uh, fingers, eyes, tongues, bosoms, and these give us clues as to what we might anticipate or what our loved ones are experiencing here. All right, the last thing we want to observe in this: the Word of God. Sub point G. The Word of God is sufficient message for eternal life. It's sufficient for all things. The Word of God is sufficient message for eternal life. And people negative to truth will not be persuaded by miracles. People negative to truth will not be persuaded by miracles. Most miracles are actually for believers. Most miracles are for the benefit of believers in order to identify the messenger and his credentials coming from the Lord. And they can identify the credentials of a divine messenger in the writing of Scripture or some other ministry. Most miracles are not for the sake of unbelievers. Not to convince them. Not to wow them. Now occasionally an unbeliever will see something and go, oh my goodness, and occasionally, but that's not the main point. Jesus even told, uh, I think it was Philip, he said, because you've seen these things, do you believe? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. See, if you need a miracle to get saved, is that what the plan of God calls for? The plan of God calls for a good news message to be preached and for a gift of salvation to be announced and for a uh, message to be accepted or rejected. You understand. People negative to truth will not be persuaded by miracles. Look at the regrets of this guy here. He said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. You know, this guy is... How old is this rich guy? We don't know. He's old enough to be rich. He's old enough to have servants. He's old enough to live luxuriously. But he's not so old that his parents are departed. You know, I think a lot of these uh, uh, live-it-up prosperity guys, they die pretty young (laughs) in a lot of cases. 
big celebrities, drug overdose, or whatever they're doing. His father's still around. I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them. Now, the them, some take it to mean only the brothers and not the father, and others take the them to include everybody, all five brothers and the father. Um, and, And you can really read it either way. But think about it. If the brothers are all unsaved, and why isn't the dad getting warned? And if the dad doesn't need to be warned then uh, how can a believing father have these uh, crummy six boys? Anyway, it's uh, more questions than answers at this point. I think it's best to take the them inclusively. Send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers, and he may warn them, all six of them, dad and all five brothers, that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That's a great description of the Old Testament, by the way. Moses and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets. And, and the, sometimes there's a third. Sometimes the Old Testament is simply called the law and refers to Genesis to Malachi. Or it's called the law and the prophets, a very common term. Or it's called the law and the Psalms and the prophets. That's a threefold division that shows uh, the different sections of, uh, of Hebrew text. In any event, Abraham is saying, look, they got the Old Testament. There's, there's priests and Levites and Bible teachers and rabbis and Prophets, pay attention to Bible class. The message is sufficient. You don't need programs. You don't need entertainment. You don't need miracles. The message preached is sufficient. People negative to truth will not be persuaded by miracles. But he says to him, no, Father. Uh, Bible class, are you kidding? They don't have any time for Bible class. They're not interested in truth. Right? But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And this is so vivid because it's not true. And Abraham tells him it's not true. And it's going to be illustrated on Resurrection Sunday, 33 A.D. Because someone will come from the dead. Jesus Christ will return from the grave, minister for 40 days in a post-resurrection earthly ministry. And there will continue to be rejection, hostility, hatred on the part of the religious leaders that put them to death in the first place. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That's a sad, um, that's a sad commentary on negative volition to truth. Negative volition to truth. And it's interesting. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear them. That's the, that's the invitation. Let them hear. The message has been revealed. Let them hear. Some of these passages, by the way, leave some folks uncomfortable. Um, in particular, Calvinists a lot of times struggle with this uh, because they, they don't like a verse that says they can hear. So they... They ignore the the command, let them hear. They think it's a stupid command or something because, well, they can't hear. Well, they're commanded to hear. And the idea that they won't also seems kind of silly. Um, That they will not listen. They will not be persuaded. Well, of course they won't be persuaded. They can't. They're completely helpless. Again, it's, it, um, if, 
a Calvinist thinks his way through a lot of this, some of these verses cause problems. That's why usually they're not thought of in any event. Doctrine is sufficient. The message is sufficient. You don't need the entertainment, the fun of games, the programs, the miracles, the, the gee whiz factor. I, I tried to give a, I gave the gospel to a guy one time. Didn't try. I did. Gave him the gospel one time. And uh, he rejected it. Didn't want any part of it. And he said, you know what? If, uh, if all that's true, if, if what you're saying really did happen and really is true, well, then, then God himself better just take human form, come here and tell me about it. I said, God did take human form. He did come here. It's your dumb fault for not being born 2,000 years ago. But he's telling you about it right now. Okay? And, but he puts this thing out there. Well, he better just take human form and tell me about it. Hello? <laughs> he did that. That's what I'm telling you. But see, the thing is, even if, even if Jesus Christ humored this guy, showed up in the flesh, he still wouldn't believe. He's full of anger, full of selfishness, full of himself. Really bitter about a whole lot of things. So, you know, you just let it go. Pray for him. Trust that maybe down the road he won't, something else will be different. Some down the road, maybe he'll be more miserable than he is today. <laughs> maybe down the road, there'll be more conviction. Maybe down the road, the drawing of the Father will be uh, such that um, he'll remember the conversation we had ten years ago. So, you know, I think that's what he was talking about. I love hearing about folks that get saved and, and uh, testify to the fact that the fellow that led him to the Christ was about the 400th person to give him the gospel. I love that. Because that shows me... Planting seeds, watering, tending. We plant, somebody else waters. God gives the growth. God gives the, God bears the fruit. So that's a fun thing there too. The Word of God is sufficient. Do you believe that the Word of God is sufficient? Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe it's sufficient not only for salvation. I don't have to add to, to doctrine to get saved. I don't have to add works. I don't have to add anything to the promise that's here in the Scriptures. Same thing holds true after salvation. My Christian walk, all things pertaining to life and godliness. There is nothing lacking in doctrine, nothing lacking in the Word of God. I don't need to combine the Word of God with human wisdom to solve my problems in life. And I'm stressing that. I'm going two minutes late to stress that today because right now our congregation is under attack and believers are having to decide, is God a liar or is God true? And either God's Word sustains me or God's Word is not sufficient. But if God's Word is not sufficient, then God's Word is a lie because God's Word says it's sufficient. And so I don't need uh, drugs. I don't need alcohol. I don't need women. I don't need sex. I don't need other things. I need God's Word for my happiness, for my obedience to His plan. And uh, that's true here for the gospel, and that's true in um, Peter. That all things pertaining to life and godliness, God has made that provision available. And I believe that. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. And I do pray for the attack that we have members under right now, and they're considering different things, and they're being told different things. And uh, the word tells them something, their pastor tells them something. Um, but a cosmos wisdom uh, professional tells them something different. 
and uh, a cosmos wisdom professional pres- uh, prescribes chemicals to change thinking. Father, I just uh, I celebrate the fact that uh, yeah, a change of thinking is needed. It's called repentance. And a change of thinking is needed. It's called uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I love you, Father, because you've given us your word that we might not be conformed to this cosmos or this ion, this age, but we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might demonstrate the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, Father, I just come before you uh, asking for your mercy, asking for your grace, and asking that you would convict believers to consider what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.